can I just ask us to stop and pray together? I'm going to ask you to stand, okay? I just want us to honor God by standing. Father in heaven, we thank you for the way you have gifted us with this incredible creation all around us, for all the beauty that we enjoy. And Jesus, we thank you that you have made it possible for us not just to enjoy all of creation around us, but you have given us the relationship that we have with our Father in heaven through your through the, the, the fact, as we heard this morning, that um, you became sin, that we might be righteous in the eyes of God. And so, Holy Spirit, now come. Open our eyes and our hearts and our mind and our ears to be able to hear your Spirit speaking through us, Spirit of God. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning we continue in this study. We started in Matthew 23 through 25, and we'll be done with Matthew when we finish this. But we are really in the heart of Matthew 24. Jesus has just walked from the temple grounds and told everyone that God had left the temple and that the temple would be destroyed. And in this passage, Jesus answers two questions that his his disciples ask him as they are at the Mount of Olives now. They've walked away. And, And the two questions are, when will the temple be torn down? And the second question is, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Now, I want to share with you this chapter in Matthew 24, we could spend weeks on. And I know of pastors who have. This topic of the end times is filled with a variety of interpretations and opinions. And it's a huge topic, as many of you know. An enormous amount has been written on it in the past 2,000 years And there's been lots of disagreement over what exactly Jesus is saying here. In fact, churches and denominations have actually split over this topic. It involves many passages of Scripture and images throughout Scripture that are frankly very hard to understand. It's so challenging, in fact, that I've been praying really hard for the last month or so, I've been preparing for this, that Jesus would return by 9 (laughs) a.m. this morning. So that I wouldn't have to make any mistakes. But I just want to encourage you as Christ followers that when we approach scriptures on the end times and the return of Christ, that you do so with great humility and with incredible grace. I reason this way. If the Jews who had waited for so long had Old Testament prophecies and predictions of Christ's first coming, And had such trouble getting it right. Um, Who are we to think that we're going to be spot on with regard to the prophecies and predictions of his second coming? I just call us to a position of humility. And I realize there are some people who have spent lots of time and studied this topic with with great detail. And you have well-formed ideas of what this scripture means. But I'm going to ask you on this topic as you listen to just kind of listen with your your ears open to what the Lord might be saying and to do so with a kind of what I call contrite heart, giving people slack who have different opinions on this. Because one of the commitments of our church and of our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church, is that we will not major on the minors, nor will we have divisions in the body on the details of some things within doctrines, but that we stay in this place where we give grace and charity in some of those areas that are not as clear. And so if if you just want an executive summary of what I'm going to say this morning and and you want to leave at this point, 
Here's something to hold on to, and I'm going to state it very clearly, and this we can know without a doubt. Scripture is incredibly clear on this, and this is this truth. Jesus is coming again. Okay? We just kind of have the baseline point that we all agree on. The Lord is going to return. And he made that very clear through many of his parables. He made it very clear, as Paul did throughout Scripture. One of my professors at the New Testament at Wheaton College, Dr. Bill Zekin, would often come around the lectern when he'd be speaking on this, and he would, he would make it very clear. He would say, when Jesus Christ comes back, the ball game's over. And, and then he would go on and he would kind of teach on this whole area. So there's way too much to cover in this passage exhaustively. So what I want to do is begin by giving you what I call a couple of hermeneutical principles that I think are very important. And, and that's a big word for really how do you study the Bible? And, I th- and I'm going to spend a few moments on this and you're going to say, well, when are you going to get to the text? We'll get to the text, but we're going to have to exactly kind of run through it. I'm going to give you two themes that I think you can all stand on in this passage of Scripture. But I, I think it's important that we start by talking, what is this? How do you interpret Scripture? One of the... In- the hermeneutical principles that you have to be aware of is that you need to know who this is written to, who Jesus is speaking to when he is talking about something. And then you also need to know what is the context from which this is written. Those are those, every Bible scholar will tell you that when you come to a text, you want to put it in its context and understand who he's speaking to and what he's been talking about. And so that's very important when you come here. I've spoken on this topic a number of times throughout my ministry, but never have I spoken on it with such a degree of understanding of the context of Scripture as I have now, because I spent a couple years into Matthew, and I can see how all the words and different things that Matthew has been saying throughout these Scriptures kind of come together in this passage of Scripture, and for me, a, 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 a new way and a new light upon it. And so Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He has just warned the religious leaders that the temple will be torn down. He says not a stone will be left upon another. And it's important to remember that when Jesus speaks, he's speaking first to his disciples. It applies to them. That's whom he is answering. Now, they can have meaning for us today, which they very much do. They are words that also point to the future, what's to come. But it's really important that what I want us to do this morning is to look at what does it mean for the disciples and how do they understand the scripture? He's trying to explain to them before he leaves. They don't understand the death, the resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They don't understand the temple being destroyed. They don't understand this huge shift that's occurring in the old covenant to the new covenant. And he's trying to prepare them. It's really essential that we understand this. It's so huge and catastrophic for Israel that Jesus took time to predict it for them when they came into this season. Often people skip right past what Jesus is saying to his disciples and they approach this passage as if Jesus was saying, I'm going to teach for a few moments, but this isn't going to apply to you, but it's going to apply to someone 2,000 years from now. And it would be really kind of silly if I stood up here today and said, I'm going to speak to you a message, but this message isn't going to apply to you, but it's a prophetic word that I'm going to speak for a thousand years later. Not saying it doesn't have those implications. But he's saying something very real to these disciples. Literally, some people, what they do when they come to this passage of Scripture, they say, Jesus' audience couldn't really understand what Jesus meant, but since we live in the last days, now we can understand what he meant. I think Jesus' audience understood to a, a pretty fairly certain degree and understood it as these words came true to them in their life. 
So that's the first interpretive um, principle. Who's being addressed? What's the context? The audience? Where is this text within its context? The second hermeneutical principle is also a very important one, and that is this. What type of literature are we actually reading? What are we what is what kind of uh, literature is Jesus expounding here? I mean, what is the style? What is he saying? And again, this is this whole idea of hermeneutics is, is the study of the Bible. How do we grow as students of Scripture? And so in order to understand what I'm reading, and this is true for any literature that you read, but especially true, you need to apply it to the word of God. In order to understand what we're reading, I must first figure out, as I read this, what kind of literature this is. Am I reading poetry? Am I reading historical narrative? Am I reading a letter to a group of people? Am I reading some Proverbs? Am I reading a parable? It's real important to understand what kind of literature that you're reading, because that will help you understand what the author is intending to say. The technical language that you learn about this when you're in seminary or maybe in a college course where you're studying literature is called genre. It's it, technically it's the it's called genre analysis. And it's just simply what kind of writing is it that I'm reading? Now, I know it all sounds technical, but informally we do this all the time when we listen to people, whether it's in a newscast or it's a magazine you pick up or a newspaper that you read. You apply this very principle of what it's called genre analysis. So I want you to pretend for a moment, just so you can get an idea of what this is like. Pretend for a moment that you are a wrestler. Okay? I know for some, just pretend that you're this big fan of the World Wrestling Federation, right? And now imagine for a moment you are a wrestler on the WWF and your opponent says to you at a press conference, I'm going to kill you. Now, does he mean that literally or figuratively? Oh, good. Okay. I was a high school wrestler, and I remember one time as I was watching the guy I would be wrestling in the semifinals, I was sitting there, and, and I heard this one mom yell out, rip his head off. And I believe it had to be the other mom, because she turned with shock and horror. You know, that's figurative. See, in the World Wrestling Federation, the WWF, we know that people are given to exaggeration, correct? They stretch the meaning of words. They use what we would call the language of hyperbole. And you have to understand that. So when they say, I'm going to kill you or I'm going to rip his head off, nobody's thinking they're literally going to die, correct? Now, let's say, for example, that you're a character in The Godfather. And Don Corleone says to you, I'm going to kill you. Is that literal or figurative? Literal. See, you're getting it. You apply this all the time. In fact, they use what is often called the language of understatement, right? They speak euphemistically of fatal events. So, for example, if you hear someone from the mafia say to you, tonight you're going to sleep with the fishes... They're not implying that in some way you're going to get a good night's sleep down at the Minnesota Zoo right by the dolphin tank. Correct? They're simply saying you're going to die. You see, it's really important that you know what kind of language or writing you are reading. It's important that you understand the informal rules that govern meaning. What is the genre? And what makes this scripture so difficult is Jesus is using a couple different genres. He's talking prophetically. He's speaking about 
things that are occurring right at that time. And he's also using what is called apocalyptic language. Something very, very familiar to the people in his day around the year 200. And, and, and some of it comes as Daniel uses a prophetic apocalyptic language in the year 200 to about the year 100 to about 150. There was an explosion of po- apocalyptic literature. And that kind of literature was the kind of literature that gave expressions of, of vivid imagery with numbers and monsters and cosmic forces like planets and stars. It's what revelation is. When you read that, and that's why people go, why is this so hard to understand? Because some of what is being used there is apocalyptic language and literature. And this was a literature that was written to give oppressed people hope. It was something that when they read it, it it, it points to something in the future. But when they read it, it gave them great hope in the midst of the persecution that was occurring with Rome. The difficulty is parsing out what does each of these things mean? How do these bizarre metaphors all work? What does that mean? So if you look at this chapter we're looking at today, it's it's called the little apocalypse, which means unveiling. And what makes it so difficult is this mixture of apocalyptic language in it. Jesus is speaking both as a prophet and also in his times apocalyptically. And so if you look at verse 29 of chapter 24, he talks here about the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. That's apocalyptic language. He's saying in a very real sense, this language is saying there is a cosmic battle going on right now. And he uses these kind of terms to say there's a huge battle between good and evil. There's a cosmic struggle that's occurring with supernatural spiritual forces. And this great heavenly war is occurring and its impact will be manifest in the physical world. So I I put this out here because so often it's so easy and what most people will do is they won't take into account this these what I call hermeneutical principles and you apply them. I don't think it makes this passage, to be honest with you, a whole lot easier in one sense, except for it causes you to have to stop and say, what's the context? What is Jesus saying? What can we look at that was occurring right then? and, And then how does that apply? recognizing, let me share with you, that there is still a future prediction. I just always say those things that are closer are easier to predict. Those things farther off become a little more difficult and we need grace and humility. So, there's two themes that are prominent as I look at this passage and I could go on and we could talk a whole lot more. Um, You can read a whole lot of authors that will get into the signs of the time that are occurring today. David Jeremiah, you can read. There's others you can read, and we won't have time to go through that. But I want to share with you, here's two themes. One is a warning of judgment, and the other is a promise of ultimate victory. Very clearly, I think as you go through this, you see this and you understand this. A warning of judgment. The idea of judgment is coming. When Jesus returns, judgment is coming. In Matthew 23, Jesus stated again and again that judgment is coming. You'll find it also in the parables in Matthew 21 and 22. Jesus says seven times, whoa, and after each one, he explains the judgment that is to come. Um, It reminds me of a time when I was in church as a little kid, and I received a series of repeated woes from my mom. I was sitting in, we always, this is the way it started. I would sit on one side, my mom would be here, and my brother would be on the other side. Or we'd start together. After probably the first hymn, we would be on either side of each her. And then eventually um, she would go to the old pinch, that move. You ever had that kind of, her arms are like this, and she would grab my arm and, the, and just, oh boy. 
you knew you were in trouble. Well, for some reason this morning, I was really keyed up and the pinch didn't work. So after that, woe, she gave another one and she just leaned forward and said, you're going to get a spanking when you get home. And then she leaned forward again. She said, you're going to get another second spanking. And then she said a third. I mean, each of these woes were being given to me. And I must have been in another world or something. Because now my mom went to like this. And with her finger, she started counting out to ten. I must have been thinking there's no way she's going to do ten when I was a kid. We got home. And after the revelation that my mom gave me that she said, I love you too much for you to behave this way. She said, I'm giving you 12 spankings. And she gave me a reason for each one. I can tell you I shaped up after that. Now, some may say, well, you looked at my mom, the sweet lady, why in the, what in the world? And I know it's going to mess with all the young parents here and the whole idea of how you care for and what you discipline your kids with. Remember, I grew up in the age of deep punishment. Anyway, um, <laughs> Jesus is leaving the temple grounds. This really sweet, wonderful, godly man has just given seven woes. And as he's walking out of the temple area, that whole grounds, he's saying as he looks at the temple and says, God has left the house. Now, here's what's amazing. Here's the God man, Jesus, pointing to the house and saying, in a sense, Israel the old covenant is now vacant. I'm doing something new. There's a huge shift that's occurring. So if you listen to 24, 1 through 2, um, I'm not going to read that again. Jesus is in the temple. He walks away. He says those things. They're scratching their head trying to understand what does he mean by the temple's coming down and he's going to raise it up again. What does all that mean? So they ask, when will they see? How will we know? What are the signs to look for? So verse 3 says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, as he had been praying, saying, if I could just gather these people, if they would just hear, they wouldn't have to experience the judgment of God. If they would just listen, because judgment is coming. And he's praying for them. He gets kind of a tap on the shoulders. Probably Peter. That's my guess. And Peter and kind of saying, we got some questions. Can you imagine it? Peter standing and they're all standing behind him. We got a couple questions. Tell us, when will this happen? He's talking about the temple coming down. And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And Jesus is answering their one question with two answers. The judgment is coming on Israel and destruction of the temple points to a greater judgment and a greater return of Christ to come. So he's kind of weave together these two answers. So if you look at Matthew 24, verses 4 through 35, he goes on to explain this one answer using prophetic language and apocalyptic language. So that it, this one question, these two, these questions with this one answer. And, and again, what you have to understand, the disciples are standing there and they have no context to understand the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the final act of God. One generation after Jesus dies, which is amazing, he gives a generation for people to turn one generation afterwards, the, the complete destruction of the temple and the destruction in the sense of Jerusalem and the dispersion of these people of Israel. And so in verses four through eight, as you read through this, 
He stresses in a sense that history is filled with events that will look like the end. The picture of history, routine history for every age, will have deceivers who claiming they're the Christ have the answer. There will be wars and rumors of war, nations fighting against nations, famines, earthquakes. And he looks and he says, don't be alarmed. This is the normal course of history. This you will see. This is such so that throughout all of history, every person can at some point in their world say, we think Jesus is coming back. Now, I think God set it up so that every generation would go, Jesus is coming. So that they would live in anticipation and expectation of his return. Verses 9 through 14 speaks about the persecution to come and that the gospel will be preached throughout the whole land. Now, understand this again contextually. If you read these verses, I'll just read them. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted, put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. And at that time, we'll turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness. The love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. In this gospel, the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And so what you read here is that in A.D. 60, around 60 years after, uh, it was just about 30 years after the death of Christ, the, the persecution that began to take place among the believers was huge. Uh, many of them were experiencing this. And you can read in Scripture where Paul says some of them left and abandoned him. And on and on you can see that what he is saying is that you need to be aware that this nation is going to be judged. And you'll see this taking place. And he basically says at one point, you guys rebel against God, won't listen to the Holy Spirit. And not only you rebel against God, but you rebel against the government that God has allowed to be over you right now, Rome. And as a result of that, Rome's going to come against you. Now, what I think is interesting is you go through the New Testament, you never find Paul or other New Testament writers calling the believers to rebel against their government. He always says, respect them, pray for them, honor them, because... That's how we respond to the spirit of God in the situations we're in. But he's basically saying you can't you rebel against God and you rebel against all authority. And that authority will come down on you in judgment. And then he says the gospel will be preached throughout the entire world. And at that time, Paul believed Christ was coming again. So many of them did because in his that time, around 60 to 70 A.D., as best they knew, the gospel had been preached in many places. Thomas went into India and Asia. You had Paul went all the way to Rome. The then known world, the, the, into Ethiopia, had gone this one person. Through the then known world, it seemed as if the gospel had preached to the whole world. Does that mean there's still a future one? Yes. But in their mind, that's what's going on. And Jesus was helping them see these signs that there will be deceivers. The gospel will be preached. And now look at verses 15 through 25, which points to the desecration of the temple by Rome. He basically goes on and says, when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet of Daniel, let the reader understand. The Jewish historian Josephus, a secular Jew and reporter for the Roman Empire, writes of this sacrilege. In fact, Josephus observed the final siege of Rome. One million Jews died. Think about that. One million Jews died during this time, A.D. 70, right around this time. Rome was surrounding Jerusalem. The army was. It says in Luke chapter 21, verse 20, this same passage of Scripture, that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, you will know that the desolation is near. 
And when the temple was was actually destroyed and Jerusalem was being overrun by Rome, Josephus writes, Daniel also wrote concerning the Roman government. This is what he writes. Daniel also wrote concerning the Roman government and that our country should be desolate by them. That's how Josephus understood what was going on. He goes on to write pagan soldiers entered the temple, tore down the temple accoutrements and in its stead raised pagan symbols and in the Holy Holy, the Roman standard. So for the disciples, this was the abomination that causes desolation. Now, again, listen to this. It was occurring then, but does it mean it will occur yet again? Yes. That's how God often does prophetic words. He speaks to the people in their time so that he can then speak to another time through it. And he gives an example. And these disciples are hearing exactly what he's saying. And Josephus describes in his historical account that there are numerous messianic pretenders and prophets that arose. And he talks about all these, Josephus does, which is what Jesus is saying here. If you look at verse 11, or begin with verse 5, 24, watch out that no one deceives you. There'll be people claiming I'm the Christ. Verse 11, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many. Verse 23, at that time, if anyone says you, look, here he is, the Christ, and there he is, do not believe it. So if anyone tells you, verse 26, there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. You see what Jesus is saying? He's talking about a destruction that they themselves would see, and this destruction would be clear to them that this age of the Jewish that Jewish faith, Old Covenant, was coming to an end. The temple and its practices and all that was needed around it. So the, light, the letter of Hebrews, and I'm going deep for some people, but you can't help but do this. The letter of Hebrews is calling these people to realize there's a superior Christ, there's a superior temple, there's a superior sacrifice, right? I just want you to get the context of what's going on, because so often what people do is run right to the future and they grab events and they try and point out who's the Antichrist, who's this, what's going on here. And these signs were very real for them. They needed to know that this age was shifting and the church was moving into what God had called it to be, that the, that the people of God would begin to express the Holy Spirit's work. And yet these still point to things yet to come. But I share with you, when you go through this and you can see how close it applies to what happened then, I would just say be careful because Jesus is using an example of what he often does points prophetically with apocalyptic language of what's happening here to what will occur, which is all to say that as you get into these last few verses of verses 26 to 31, some using apocalyptic language, don't have time to go through all that. But he basically says there's a cosmic war going on with, with the fall of the temple. A gigantic spiritual shift is occurring. There is a new age beginning. God's temple is now you and me. And scripture makes it clear that God is acting. And one of the very clear themes here is that God judges. God judges those who pose and stand against him. In Matthew 20, 32 through 35, Jesus addresses his disciples once again, and he makes it clear. They will be able to see when this shift is occurring. And you can see this, especially when you see verse 34, when he says, truly. He says, now learn the lesson from the fig trees. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Listen to verse 34. Truly, I tell you, he's talking to them, this generation. Now, some people can say this race. It could mean that. It could mean both. I don't know. 
But every time that it's used in Matthew before this, it's always about this generation speaking to the disciples. He says, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So look for false messiahs. Watch that the gospel it will be proclaimed. This little gospel in this little land of Israel is going to be throughout the world. And Rome will, desolate, will come and desolate Jerusalem and its temple. And believers are going to suffer. And when you see that happening, know that you're shifting into something new. Now, Jesus appears to be speaking to his disciples, but yet, in my opinion, as you read the scripture, you can't deny that there is a judgment that is so similar in its nature that's yet to come. We just don't know the details. And if you look at this further, Jesus even says, if you say, he says, like a fig tree coming in seasons, you'll also know the idea when the temple is coming down. And he goes on to speak in verse 36, which Peter Kapsner will speak on next week. He begins in verse 36. No one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven or the son, but the only the father. As you to the end of the age, in a sense, he's saying it will be a surprise. So be ready, be ready. And he says, and work and, and look and watch and wait. And work for the renewal of all things. Serve the Lord. So one clear, unmistakable point of this teaching is judgment is coming. Now, that's not a popular message in our world today. Because we like to give, as we said, participation badges to everybody so their ego won't be in any way hurt. Like with kids, right? But we live in a world where judgment is real. And I just want to say, I'm not going to even get to this other point of the ultimate victory, but the next few parables will talk about this coming of Jesus Christ. So we'll wait for that. But we live in a world where we understand judgment. We recognize that errant actions will be judged, even ones you don't intend. And I had a good example of this just this last late spring. I had been in Arizona. I was doing an MC thing for another ministry. And I get home and I open up a letter from Arizona and, and I see this picture and I'm going. And they they black out the one side and I'm looking at it and I'm going, that's not me. And they said I was going 32 miles in like a 20 mile hour zone on, in Paradise Valley of all places. And I honestly going, I, I don't remember. I don't recall that. I wasn't speeding, and so I call up, and I try and be real friendly and nice, and I'm thinking, how do I convince them that's not, that's not me? And she goes, you know, um, did you look at the license plate? You know, do you want to trace it? I mean, she, you know, after like about two seconds feeling foolish, I recognize there is no way I'm getting out of that. Judgment was coming. And I was going to have to pay the cost. And so I decided to get off my record and I did a four hour training thing, driver's thing, Internet. Anybody ever done anything like that? Oh, there's a few of you. Yay. Do you know what? The word of God is really clear. He says judgment comes. And so if you look at this verse, first Peter in the midst of suffering. Peter's writing about how to handle suffering in a government that's oppressing them. He says for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household and it begins with us which was happening there, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I just want to just make a really clear message. Are you right with God? Are you right with God? 
Jesus will return, we don't know when. And we know that God's judgment for those who, as he says, what will it be for those who just put their hand up and say, forget the grace of God. I don't care whether you paid my ticket or not. I'm going to go like little Kevin and you can woe me to death. And God in his heart is just calling and waiting for the response for you to come to him. And I was going to go into this for those of you who suffer right now. Um, You know, people have this pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. I don't really care what trib it is. All we know is that people suffer all around the world. And we know at times we call the sufferer. But you know that in our suffering, God redeems that to touch the lives of other people. Just like the story we heard. And the ultimate victory is this, that Jesus is coming and he will triumph. And we will not end this life in suffering if we know him. And we humble our hearts and open our hearts to him. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we're going to sing together. I asked Joel to sing this, this hymn because I think it's a powerful hymn. Because it's all about the fact that what Jesus was doing was he was coming to recreate and renew this world. And he did so by coming first to deal with the sin in our hearts and lives. And he will come someday to take sin out of this world completely and renew all things. And we get to, in the process, be involved in moving to this renewal place, knowing that all wrong will someday be right.